It's my great pleasure to introduce Jeremy Gordon. Uh, it is a fascinating subject he is going to be talking to us about. He has over 20 years' experience of doing business in China and advising others on how to do business in China. So we have a very unique opportunity uh, here with him. Uh, for those of you who uh, might fall asleep during the presentation, you should be reminded that he has just written a book um, and it is called Risky Business in China, A Guide to Due Diligence. There are copies for view over there uh, and for sale in a bookshop nearby. Thank you. Uh, Jeremy will be talking for about 30, 35 minutes and then question and answer. Thank you. Thanks very much and uh, thank you all for coming along. <clears throat> it's getting harder for foreign companies to do business there. I really worry about China. I'm not sure that in the end they want any of us to win or any of us to be successful. That's uh, Jeffrey Immelt's view, the, the CEO of General Electric in 2010. China is just too risky. An even more dire view, this time from Paul Bizarro, the activist CEO earlier this year. And if I may be allowed to quote from my own book, uh, current sentiment is that business risk is as high as it has ever been. Why is there so much negativity around China? And what can business do about it? My view is that rapid and fundamental changes in China's political, economic and social environment have changed the nature of opportunities and of the risks that international business face in China. There are, of course, opportunities, especially in some of the emerging sectors, in services and around consumption and outbound investment. But for many of the established players and the big companies that have been in China during the opening up period, it is the risks that have front of mind position and grab the attention. It's not all bad news. And as you will all know, nothing in China is ever plain black and white. But I feel that the risks uh, have changed and they need to be addressed. And that's going to be the focus of my comments uh, to you today. Businesses need to understand and adapt to what is a new reality for business risk in China. And if they don't do so, they are in big danger of getting burnt. And we'll see some of the examples of where companies have been burnt in the recent past. Please forgive the dragon cliché. I promised myself I wouldn't do it. It's not on the cover of my book anyway. One of the few China books not to have a dragon. But it's Napoleon's fault. He's the one who said... When the sleeping dragon awakes, it will shake the world. Blame him, not me. The dragon is certainly awake, and parts of the corporate world are certainly shaking. And the cliché is all well and good, but what does the dragon represent, and what do we really mean when we talk about China? To Western eyes, the dragon is a dangerous threat. We have visions of knights in armour rescuing princesses from fire-breathing dragons. But to Chinese eyes and through the Chinese cultural lens, the dragon is a positive force, uh, an auspicious sign. So although we uh, see the same thing, we can draw very different conclusions based on our different perspectives. Equally, on one side, we can see China as one of the great cultures of the world, the source of some of the great world-changing inventions. It's a country that has brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, 
and it's also been the driver of global economic growth during a very difficult few years. But take a different perspective for a moment, and then China can become an aggressive and strategic threat, a massive polluter on a global scale, an infringer of intellectual property, and a state that's controlled by a mysterious communist party, with all the things that that entails. Of course, we have to see China in both negative and positive ways, just as we see other things in in a complicated world. And China can have positive and negative implications. And these can change over time. Nothing is static. Taking an element of the news uh, recently, uh, I've been reading about Australia. And obviously, Australia has been one of the great beneficiaries of China's economic growth. Uh, It has literally fed China's economic growth with its natural resources, coal as a case in point. I mentioned a minute ago that one of the problems uh, facing China and one of the negative aspects of China is the environmental pollution that it creates. A lot of that coal is the coal that's come from Australia. So while Australia has benefited from the economic growth, suddenly we find that China might introduce environmentally friendly policies that will put a tariff on imports of Australian coal with devastating impact for some companies uh, and probably a a, a bad impact for the Australian economy overall, unless, of course, they can come to a conclusion on their free trade agreement. Maybe it's coincidental that these things all happen at the same time. There are many companies. uh, We looked at the country level. There are also uh, company-level impact. Obvious companies that have felt the wrath of the Chinese dragon are companies like Yahoo, Google, Facebook and Twitter, uh, which are seen to uh, be too far removed from China's strict uh, uh, censorship policies. But of course, a little strategic thinking, uh, and you suddenly find Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder, in Beijing at uh, at Tsinghua University, speaking in Chinese and massively expanding his hiring effort in China to help Chinese companies expand overseas. So even when you get blocked in China, it doesn't mean that China can't form part of your strategy. Good for him, I say. Other companies like LinkedIn, which has been in the news recently, uh, decided to take a different approach, and they actually censored their global user base for all comment about China, whether by Chinese or by foreigners, and whether in China or outside China. That's going too far in the opposite direction, I would say, in a desire to appease. And they will end up losing support elsewhere. Getting down to the human level, there are also contradictions that we have to deal with. Uh, And in the book, I reference the case of Keith Darby, a British property developer in Hainan. He, like many of us looking at China, see a lot of challenges. And we read and we talk to people and we find out that Guanxi is really useful, particularly if you're in a property Uh, deal that's quite complicated and requiring lots of government approvals. So he did what many people do and he found a strong local partner, China Resources Enterprises or one of their subsidiaries, with the financial strength but also the political strength to help push the deal through. However, after a commercial dispute, he found that that very same power was now targeted against him uh, and he was unable to find any recourse through the courts or other channels. So again, we see the positive side of Chinese power, but also, in his case, very much the negative side. So China is complex, but is it welcoming? And on what terms? 
This picture is, um, well, it's a fairly light-hearted picture of uh, one of my trips to China in the uh, early 90s uh, in the Forbidden City, where literally the open-door policy was in full swing. Possibly not fair to the, uh, to the guard on the door who seemed to be otherwise occupied. Prior to that, um, that was not my first meeting with a Chinese government official. I mean, I was in Hong Kong in the army uh, in the late 80s. Uh, and one of the first things that uh, I experienced was uh, being put on one of the British boats uh, protecting Hong Kong. And uh, we were patrolling, looking for smugglers' boats uh, outside the harbour. And we actually boarded one of these boats. And I, I was very new on the ground. And um, it felt good, boarding a boat, a lot of power. But actually, we were confronted by an armed Chinese officer who'd already boarded the boat and had it fully under control. It was a little bit disconcerting, and clearly things could have got out of hand. Luckily, we had good people with us, and we were able to negotiate a, uh, a hasty retreat. The meetings I've had with government officials since then have typically been uh, less problematic, but not necessarily without some nerves. In the mid-1990s, when the open-door policy was still in full swing, China was very welcoming not necessarily to people in the British Army, uh, but very welcoming to manufacturing investment, to technology and machinery of the sort that the company I was working for in Hong Kong was selling by the bucket load. It was less welcoming to some other companies, some of the pharmaceutical companies, the banks, the insurers and other businesses for whom at that time we were lobbying for market access. Even some of those manufacturing companies, while they were welcome to bring the investment and the technology and the machinery and the know-how, they were not welcome to sell a lot of those products that were manufactured in the domestic market. There was a lot of protection of domestic competition. And if you got your license to manufacture, you had to export some, or in many cases, almost all of your products. Of course, that was before China's WTO accession in 2001, but there are still issues around market access that we have to deal with. More recently, uh, taking as an example again from the news, uh, we had last year China being found in violation of WTO rules in relation to the regulations it imposed on rare earth exports, the sorts of rare earths that you find run your mobile phones and your iPads. Again, this was a regulation introduced supposedly on environmental grounds, and maybe it indeed was. But it also, coincidentally, might have provided an enormous advantage to Chinese companies versus their foreign counterparts, who found it more difficult to access these critical materials. So at that time, we were allowed through the door, but we did have to play by the local rules. And what we were doing at that time was very new. And the rules were new as well. The rules also kept changing because China was changing very quickly. And those changes required a flexible approach on behalf of business and also on behalf of government and the regulators. There were lots of different approaches being tested at a national level, at a local level, with individual companies and in individual industries. And because things changed so quickly, who you knew really mattered. That guanxi I talked about earlier really mattered because things changed from day to day. The information was not in plain sight. There was no mobile internet. You couldn't look things up online. You had to know what to ask for, how to ask for it, and who to ask, or you were flying in the dark. 
Luckily, at that time, my chairman was very well connected, so we knew who to ask and generally got a good response, which gave us a real advantage. Nowadays, that itself uh, has a risk in terms of the anti-corruption campaign. But at times, it seemed like maybe Beijing wasn't even looking. A bit like the guard on the door of the Forbidden City. But, on the other hand, perhaps they were just busy rewriting the rulebook. Perhaps that's what he was reading. And now what we're finding is that those rules are being liberally applied, not necessarily evenly applied. China is welcoming to those that it wants to be in China and those that it needs to be in China. But the open door that we see here is also an exit. And anyone who breaks the rules or overstays their welcome might be pushed back through it, or if they stay, may be forced to pay a high price, as GSK and others have found out. So how did we get to this point? I'd like to look backwards a little bit at a bit of history, a bit of my personal history in China. This little girl, uh, I, I took a picture of her when I was on one of my first trips to China in 1991. That's in Dali in Yunnan province. But looking at the picture, it could have been 1881 or any time uh, in, in the last three or four hundred years. At that time, foreign devils like me were a rarity in places like Dali, although it's not that long ago. I even made some Chinese children cry just by being there, and for that I apologise to all the Chinese children. At that time, Dali was a 15-hour torturous bus ride from Kunming. I was back in Kunming about 18 months ago. It's now a 40-minute flight from Kunming's Arab-designed international airport. In that short space of time, China, like Dali, has moved from rural agriculture to urban industry and services from basic roads and slow buses to international airports and high-speed rail. International business, of course, has played an important role in building that modern infrastructure that's driven the Chinese economy in recent years. But they would like more access to it. Local interests have a healthy local advantage, or if you're not local, perhaps you see it as an unhealthy local advantage. The planners and designers who help put together Kunming International Airport, Beijing Airport and many other airports across China are limited in the work that they can do, as are the contractors. So the detailed work goes to local design institutes. The construction work goes to local construction companies. It's very difficult for foreign companies to do that work because the regulations bar them from it. We fast forward now to 2012. This is a Similar picture in some ways, but very dissimilar in other ways. <clears throat> so Dazu near Chongqing, it's a, it's a world, UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's an amazing place if you get an opportunity to visit it. And as I came down from having a look around, these young girls ran across the car park shouting at me, hello, in English, and snapping photos with their smartphones. I, I was probably a star on uh, Weibo that day. But what a difference from that little girl in, in Dali in 1991. They were confident, educated, connected, tech-savvy consumers living the Chinese dream, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream of wealth and happiness, and probably little nationalists as well. They live in Chongqing, on some measures, the biggest city in the world. And again, depending on how you measure it, as many as 30 million people. It's an inconceivably large place. I've been there a number of times. And I heard from the Chongqing government that they have 3,000 new urban residents every day. No wonder 
there's a construction boom with massive plans around things like the Liangjiang New Area that I helped British companies engage with as an opportunity while I worked with UK Trade and Investment for a number of years. Of course, Chongqing also has a dark side. And when I was there in 2012, around the time of uh, this picture, the news about Neil Haywood, the murdered English businessman, <clears throat> and the links with Bo Lai and his family started to come out. Uh, and I've met and shaken hands with Bo Lai, an incredibly charismatic man who I suspect doesn't remember meeting me. Um, but he was all-powerful as the party secretary. <clears throat> the, the sort of future, very international, very urbane uh, politician from China. But, of course, his story is now uh, well known. Despite that, China's progress has been palpable. But on the flip side, China is still challenged by many issues. Wealth disparity, environmental degradation, an ageing population, rising health costs and slowing growth. You know, the list goes on. The many parallel and challenging transitions have included its move from a closed to an open economy. When I first went to China in the early 1990s, we only ever met with and sold to state-owned enterprises. In fact, one of the first private enterprises I dealt with in China was Alibaba. I wish I got a job there. It's moved from uh, state to private. It's moved from production to consumption. It's moved from rapid growth to slower growth, with Li Keqiang calling slower growth the new normal, and we have to get used to it. And that brings new challenges. <clears throat> the focus has moved from exports and investment as drivers from growth to domestic consumption. But it's going to take time. And it's moved from this anything-goes uh, environment <clears throat> to an anti-corruption campaign, which we will all have read about a lot in the media recently. Where it will go next and how it will get there is a key question for business to ask. So I've been to China a lot of times, and I've taken a lot of pictures, but uh, hopefully this is a useful backdrop. Because all that change and development presented itself at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, which we can see as China's grand coming-out party. And this was just before the Olympics, up near the Great Wall, uh, ironically, the defensive Great Wall, welcoming the world with one dream, quote-unquote. And I was in Beijing, amongst other things, for a private dinner, also ironically, uh, in the Forbidden City, before the infamous Starbucks incident uh, came to light. But as many of you have probably experienced, uh, private visits to the Forbidden City are nothing new. <clears throat> but the One World, One Dream slogan made me think of a book. Um, not my book. I'll talk about that again later. Um, it's Beijing Jeep, Jim Mann's story of one of the first joint ventures in China. And in that book, he talked about what is now a cliche on a par with Napoleon's dragon, which is sharing the same bed, but different dreams. Those different dreams uh, are the things that cause us to part our ways uh, when we start doing business in China. Uh, a bit like the perceptions of the dragon, they can differ. And it made me think about a visit I had uh, to the Great Wall, um, even earlier than that, with some of Hong Kong's business leaders before the 1997 hango hangover. Handover. The hangover is now, uh, if, you read the, uh, if you read the papers. Um, but that taught me that China was not just complicated for foreign devils like me, Guaylo, as we were affectionately or less affectionately known in Hong Kong, but also for compatriots from Hong Kong. And it taught me that power and money don't always work in China. So a quick anecdote. Uh, we'd arrange, we had a champagne breakfast on the Great Wall for a hundred of these 
Hong Kong business leaders. Uh, and we prearranged access to the Great Wall as a sort of a little tour afterwards. But a gatekeeper, a young lady uh, on the wall, wouldn't let us through. She's obviously a very junior employee and she had her uh, rules that she had to follow. So I failed to gain access for all these VIPs lining up behind me. And one of them tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, Jeremy, I'll, I'll deal with this. You, you move out of the way. You, you know, you've done very well, but you know, frankly, this is a job for greater people than you. I was followed by a property magnate, a textile king, and a transport boss. They tried a variety of polite requests, stern requests, friendly negotiation, and I won't say bribery, but all sorts of different offers. All to no avail. Regulations were regulations, and the gatekeeper was not only risk-averse, but was driven by a different set of assumptions and desires, like keeping her job. So we had to wait for the big boss to issue new instructions and let us in. And and that's a lesson that stuck with me. You do need to do things differently, and power doesn't always win. But on one level, perhaps there was one dream, just like uh, in the banner. And I suspect it's the same dream held by Olympic athletes, Chinese companies, foreign companies, and everyone around the table. And that is to win, uh, back to Jeffrey Immelt's words. The question is whether there's a level playing field on which to compete, and whether the rules are the same for all the competitors. I suspect they're not. So I noted earlier... Uh, Jeffrey Immelt and his feeling that China didn't want foreign firms to win that was in 2010 but the environment for foreign firms had already started to change and indeed it's changed since then and I remember writing a blog post in 2006 about a comment from the head of the National Bureau of Statistics Li Dershui who warned and I will quote If we allow the free development of malicious acquisitions by multinational companies, the autonomous brands and innovative ability of China's national industry will gradually disappear. That was a red flag, if ever I saw one. There were then, and still are, accusations of foreign firms avoiding taxes and mistreating Chinese consumers and Chinese workers. Companies like Apple, McDonald's and KFC have been in the news recently. Imolt's words also came following big problems for Rio Tinto in 2009. And that event where the the Rio Tinto 4, as they were known, uh, executives were arrested for uh, theft of commercial secrets and indeed bribery to obtain those commercial secrets, maybe even state secrets uh, about the steel industry. And it woke a lot of people up to the fact that the risks were not just commercial but criminal. And the impact was not only of breaking the law and being punished, but of having simple things like access to your senior employees, even if they're foreign and find it difficult to get consular access. And of course, the long-term business implications and risks of perhaps being locked out of China. Fast forward to GSK's problems with the the bribery scandal of 2013, uh, and perhaps it shouldn't have been such a shock. These things have been a long time coming. The pharmaceutical sector was well known ever since I've been in China for being corrupt. It's not even an open secret. It's not a secret at all. Uh, And that's for structural issues as well as operational ones. The anti-corruption campaign was already ongoing and China was in the middle of massive healthcare reform, expanding healthcare coverage and trying to reduce costs. It's no wonder they went after the pharmaceutical industry and it really shouldn't be a surprise that they went after one of the big foreign (coughs) companies that holds themselves to a higher standard. 
So a big foreign company, the tall tree that attracts the wind, or the chicken that gets killed to, killed to scare the monkeys, um, maybe was an obvious target. But what did surprise many people, even if that didn't surprise them, was that senior and well-connected foreign executives got arrested, and in some cases imprisoned. And of course, the GSK story has a complicated backstory, uh, including uh, the, the arrest and imprisonment of Peter Humphrey, the uh, investigator working with GSK, and his Chinese-American wife from a very well-connected family. And these things brought due diligence and risk into sharp focus for people, even those people that had failed to wake up to it uh, during the uh, Rio Tinto episode. Another reminder of risk of a different sort was Caterpillar's catastrophic uh, $500 million loss following an investment write-down after their acquisition of era mining machinery. And that was due to accounting fraud in China. And again, accounting fraud is nothing new anywhere in the world, but especially it's not a new thing in China. Anyone that's been following China investment will have read about Muddy Waters and Sino Forest, uh, a number of companies in the US, uh, Chinese listed companies in the US, being delisted uh, and accused of accounting frauds. These things are not mysterious. They're, they're there in, in plain sight in the news to see. The problem comes not with the accounting fraud itself, but in the fact that people do not adapt their risk management processes to capture those risks and deal with them. So while I understand that Caterpillar did lots of due diligence on the financials, and they employed, I think, two of the big four accounting firms to do the due diligence, they did it in a very Western and a very narrow way. I suspect that they, like others, might have asked the accountants to look at the books that have been provided by the target and see if the numbers in those books added up. And it would be a pretty poor fraudster that cooked up a set of books where they didn't add up the numbers correctly. A much better approach to risk management and due diligence in China is to take account of the local scene and to make sure that the commercial due diligence and the operational due diligence is dealt with, not just the numbers, which can be made up, and in this case, certainly were made up. Out of interest, the record I've heard for the number of books in one Chinese company is 12. So it can be quite complicated. And all of this was the context of the activists of the big pharmaceuticals company, of their decision to pull out of China uh, earlier this year, because it was just too risky. So the risks are real, and they're not just the commercial risks that I've been talking about. They're also political and regulatory Recently, we've seen that state-owned enterprises have been guided away from dealing with big foreign IT firms and consulting companies. There have been accusations of Chinese hacking and IP theft, and a raft of anti-monopoly law actions, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly against foreign firms. <clears throat> the FT recently said that their research showed that 80% of AML fines uh, in the last year or two had been against foreign firms rather than Chinese firms. So there does seem to be an imbalance. In an era of slowing growth, uh, rising costs and squeezed margins and greater competition, these things have a big impact on business. They can also lead to people cutting corners and taking more risks, not less, as supply chain efficiencies are found and as people fight for contracts using any means at their disposal even if those means might be illegal. So we have to think about stopping to think and changing direction. And this changing business environment is not just a theory. It's something that I've lived in practice. Uh, my business uh, used to be 100% focused on China market entry strategy. 
But since the 2000s, I found more and more demand for risk management services because more and more people, having entered the market, found it more difficult than they'd anticipated. And I'm now involved in three businesses. Obviously, the risk and due diligence side, but you'll be glad to hear the bright side of the opportunity again. Another one that's focused on Chinese outbound investment, which is one of the big stories uh, for business globally. Chinese companies are making dramatic acquisitions overseas. In the UK, we've had over £25 billion worth of Chinese investment. And Chinese overseas investment has grown over 20, or about 22% so far this year and is looking to grow probably by 10% a year going forward. But the big story around the opportunity side of the equation is around consumption. And I'm engaged in a business that focuses on connecting luxury brands with Chinese consumers. Because Chinese consumers are the biggest consumers of luxury in the world. And 60% of what they spend is spent overseas in places like Hong Kong and London and Paris. And there is a rush to engage with these consumers, many of whom are the 100 million Chinese who will travel overseas this year, who represent an important market in their own right, obviously larger than many countries. And the opportunities, of course, are clear, if nothing else, than from China's scale. But the risks, these include corruption and bribery, fraud, regulation and legal issues. All of these things, they're not unique to China. And in, in, in my research for the book, um, I found that these risks in the various uh, international rankings are very much on a par in China with the other BRICS countries. The difference is that these risks are amplified in China, and I think they're amplified for two reasons. One is the fact that China houses the supply chain clusters that produce all of the stuff that we buy in the shops, you know, from, from the iPhones to the Christmas trees. It has the industry clusters and the know-how. It has the uh, logistical infrastructure that allows these things to get to market. If you've ever tried to do business in Vietnam or move manufacturing from China to Vietnam, you will know that it is no simple thing. And of course, Vietnam has been in the news recently uh, in relation to China, and there are all sorts of difficulties associated with that China plus one strategy for business. There's an even greater risk when China is a key market for a business. It already controls the supply of many products in the supply chain, but it's also a country that people rely on as a market. So businesses are increasingly caught between China as a source of supply and China as the market. So what happens in China has a very big impact on a business. And unlike the other BRICS, China is not optional. You have to have strategic engagement. And when we look at that strategic engagement, and if you'll forgive the management speak, um, I found that I was unintentionally doing a pestle analysis political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental. On the political side, we have the anti-corruption campaign and China's assertiveness around uh, some islands and other issues. The economy, I've already talked about, bigger but slower as the new normal. Social, we have urbanisation, the Chinese dream, but also protests against chemical plants and forced removals from property. We have an ageing population. On the technical side, there's indigenous innovation and R&D spending, but also innovation of the sort that we've seen, commercial innovation like Alibaba's. Legal issues, this is a focus of the fourth plenum that's been going on this week, and perhaps we have more judicial independence, but it is, of course, something that remains a political rule of law. And on the environmental side, 
Well, if you saw any pictures from the Beijing Marathon last weekend, you'll know that that is a very hazy future uh, with uh, impact across all of those issues that I've just discussed. So businesses need a strategic response. Better risk management is a start, but it needs to go much deeper than that. Change is coming from every angle, and businesses need to stop and consider what direction they're going to take. I'll just give three brief examples. Tesco's moved away from doing its own, uh, launching its own brand business in China and has entered a minority joint venture with a 20% stake in a joint venture with uh, China Resources, a company we have already heard about a, a bit earlier on. So the WUFI was the received wisdom, the wholly owned foreign enterprise. But actually, for some businesses in some sectors, that is no longer necessarily the way to go. Another example is 3M, which has decided to be in China for China, to use their slogan, and to play as a local. They recognise the risk of being a big foreign target that is not contributing to the local business infrastructure. Another example, Weetabix, got acquired by Bright Foods and has gone into China with the benefit of being a trusted foreign brand, but also with the benefit of Chinese ownership, the guanxi, the networks, the know-how that China brings with it. And companies that are too aggressive and arrogant in their approach to China may find it's not just Weetabix that China can eat for breakfast. So just to make sure you're all on your toes, have a look up at the screen. It's testing times, and and I have a quick test for you. Um, This popped up in my Facebook stream the other day, along with many other uh, things from Hong Kong, which which will be a discussion for another day. Um, Don't worry, it's just for primary school kids. Not a challenge for the intellectual might of uh, Chatham House. The kids only had 20 seconds to work out what that series of numbers meant. I won't embarrass one or two of the baffled-looking faces, but I will admit to being baffled myself. 86, 87, 88, 89, they are the numbers in the car parking spaces. They're just upside down and partially blocked. What you need to do is change your perspective. Just like, just like with the, uh, the cliched dragon, we need to look at what, what, what is there, but from a different perspective. And many of the things that foreign firms worry about when they look into China make perfect sense to Chinese people and Chinese companies looking out. Many of our assumptions, like the rule of law, contracts, audited account, codes of conduct, they can't simply be transplanted and expected to flourish in China. We need to adapt our thinking before that car moves out of its parking spot and starts driving towards us. Or not end well if we don't move. So, just to conclude... Some things, like the Great Wall, another trip to China, uh, never seem to change. But beyond these obvious landmarks, change is absolutely everywhere. We're facing rising costs with squeezed margins and cut corners. These result in the bribery scandals, toxic supply chains, and product recalls that we read about every day. Slowing growth to under 7.5%, 7 7.3% in the third quarter, was just uh, announced, uh, means that targets are ever harder to reach. There's increased competition, particularly from Chinese firms, maybe partly because of some of the protection people think they've been getting. But this is now the top challenge reported by the US-China Chamber of Commerce in their latest report. There is increased scrutiny from regulators and from the media, especially in relation to foreign firms and, to be fair, in relation to corrupt officials. But in response as businesses, we need genuine engagement at multiple levels more understanding of the challenges faced by both sides, 
And when we're talking to our companies, we mustn't talk to them just about the scale of the opportunities. We have to talk to them about the risks and the fact that those risks need to be handled in different ways when they go to China. We need strategic review with risk as a core component, not as an appendix. And we need a move beyond compliance box ticking. We need balanced corporate values that align individual rewards with those values and drive the right sort of behaviour of employees. And we need vocal localization for the long term and for the local good. You don't want to stand out as a big evil foreign company that is simply a profit extractor. International businesses need to align with Chinese government policy and to understand that while that open door may still be there, so is the defensive wall. For many businesses, I would argue that the issue is not now how they should judge that cliched Chinese dragon, but whether the dragon will judge them to be good or bad for China. Thank you very much.